This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leaders Speak on Federal Acquisition. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. Each week, my goal is straightforward, to introduce you to key government executives who are tackling significant management challenges and seizing opportunities to lead. To complement these examples of leadership in action, I also highlight the practical actionable research done by some of the most recognized and respected thought leaders in public management. Whether government leaders or thought leaders, our guests join us for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation. Over the last five years, I've interviewed more than 300 of them. It is from this rich library that have culled together their insights on federal acquisition. In fiscal year 2012, the federal government acquired $517 billion worth of products through contracts contracting expenditures amount to 16% of total federal spending. Purchases range from simple products like office supplies or landscaping to more complex products like advanced weapon systems and program management services. Today, every federal agency operates in an environment where budgets are tightening and the demand for services seems to be increasing. Agencies need to be more effective and more efficient with the resources they have. As the difficulties confronting the federal government becomes increasingly complicated, so too the types of services and goods they need to address these challenges. The federal government is increasingly acquiring products that have qualities that cannot be clearly or easily defined in advance and are difficult to verify after the product or service has been delivered. Most people are familiar with other agency mission support functions like financial management, information technology, or workforce and human capital. But what is acquisition in the federal context? How is it a strategic enabler for government to get its varied missions accomplished? These are very important questions. To explore these questions and more, I've enlisted the aid of former practitioners and chief procurement officer for the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, as well as two very insightful researchers who will provide their insights into these questions. From the practitioner's perspective, Dr. Nick Nyack, former DHS chief procurement officer, distinguishes acquisition from procurement and provides a high-level description of federal acquisition. And it's important to sort of know what is the difference between acquisition and procurement. And uh, very simply put, procurement is a subset of acquisition. And acquisition can be defined very simply as uh, three parts to uh, the, the entire process. The first part is sort of knowing what you want and then defining it into what we call a requirement. The second part is after you have that requirement, then you want to send it out to industry for uh, bids on that, and that begins the procurement process or the second phase. 
And then the last phase is presumably if you get a successful contract award, uh, then you begin the program management as well as the contract management and ultimately deliver something of value. So, you know, just for instance, let's just take, for example, uh, something that most people can understand in TSA. You would have the uh, machines that screen uh, folks as they go through the airports. How would that work in the acquisition process? Well, you know, you would have the requirements definition phase. You would go out for procurement for those particular machines. You'd have a competition. You'd have a contract award. It doesn't end there, however. Uh, the machines have to be installed in the airports. Life goes on. It has to be tested, and we have to ensure that they work ultimately uh, to uh, create a safer airports across the nation. Whether it is making airports safer or securing the nation's food supply, the ultimate purpose of federal acquisition is to put simply, support an agency's mission by providing the necessary goods and services for it to meet its mission. Trevor Brown and David Vance Lyke, authors of Complex Contracting, Government Purchasing in the Wake of the U.S. Coast Guard's Deep Water Program, place a finer emphasis on this critical mission support function. So I think most people, when they think of acquisition, think more simply of purchasing, just buying simple stuff like paper clips and um, copy paper or office supplies. Uh, but the reality is, is that increasingly uh, federal agencies need critical uh, goods and services to be able to perform their core missions. So in the report I wrote for IBM, I highlighted the, um, the Black Hawk helicopter in the interdiction of Osama bin Laden and the ultimate taking his body out of the compound. Without the Black Hawk, the mission doesn't succeed. Today, the thing that's probably most on people's mind is the uh, healthcare.gov website. In the absence of that website working successfully, the Affordable Care Act doesn't work successfully. Now, you probably don't think about that when you're buying a website. You think, oh, I'm just buying a website. But no, you're buying a critical, integral part of your program. And, and that's what acquisition is now. It's acquiring essential goods and services to be able to perform basic mission functions inside organizations. David Vance Light continues and underscores that federal acquisition is a key strategic enabler. It's really important to be able to get those purchases right. But another key aspect, really, for the listenership of, of this show is really thinking about being strategic as well. Mm -hmm. And that raises the question of what are you buying from the market? Mm -hmm. Are you buying just products? Or at times, are you also buying something else, like the ability to do something that the government itself lacks the expertise or capability or the, the capacity to be able to execute? While Dr. Nick Nyack, former DHS chief procurement officer, provided a high-level description of federal acquisition, Trevor Brown takes a deeper dive into illustrating the federal acquisition process itself. So an expert would tell you there are hundreds of steps in this process. Uh, I'll break it down simply into three phases. The first is the pre-award phase. That's everything that happens before you buy the product. So that's determining uh, whether you want to make the product internally or you want to go out to market. If you decide you're going to go out to market, that's surveying the market to see what's available. Uh, that's meeting with the ultimate consumers of that product within the agency to see what is it they need, which ultimately ends with you, the purchaser, defining what it is you want to the degree that you can. We want it to be a certain size, shape, and do all sorts of different things. Federal contract officials call that the requirements definition 
portion of the pre-award phase. The second, once you've decided what you want to buy, is the award phase. And you can think of that as the literal transaction. That's putting the RFP out, the request for proposal that describes the product and the way it will be purchased. And then it's meeting with potential vendors, recruiting people. It's almost a sales pitch to the vendors or potential vendors to come forward with proposals. Then it's selecting who's the winner going to be. Then the third phase and final phase is the post-award phase. It's everything that happens now that we've purchased the product. For some kinds of products, the post-award phase is literally just the delivery of, here's your box of paper clips. For other kinds of products, things like information technology systems uh, that take a long time to produce, the post-award phase, once we've selected the vendor, means managing a relationship with the vendor. It's managing a series of relationships and potential relationships, uh, and those are management competencies and requirements. Federal acquisition doesn't occur in a vacuum. There's a specific regulatory regime that governs acquisition practices, known as the Federal Acquisition Regulations, the FAR. Brown and Van Slyke elaborate on it and the holy trinity of acquiring things in the federal space. So there's a document called the Federal Acquisition Regulations that basically set the rules on what's permissible in contracting. And one of the things that the FAR does is specify what the goals of federal acquisition are. And buried in there are two sort of approaches to setting the criteria by which we would judge an acquisition or evaluate it. One is what's called best value. Uh, And best value is a broader interpretation of what we're getting out of the exchange. And it typically involves three criteria, the sort of holy trinity of contracting. That's cost, Mm -hmm. performance, and schedule or delivery. Cost is how much does it cost? Did it come in at the price we expected? Performance, does it do the things we want it to do? And then schedule is, did it come in on time? In a best value acquisition, a procurement official is allowed to balance each proposal along those three criteria and make trade-offs of, oh, well, this one's more expensive. Its cost is higher. uh, But the quality that we see in the proposal is higher. So one approach is to balance those three criteria. The other approach that's specified in the FAR is called the LPTA approach, which is lowest price, technically acceptable. So all those three criteria are still in play, cost, quality, and schedule. But here the argument is if we can precisely define the product, we can say as specifically as possible, here are the performance criteria. It's technically acceptable. Well, then we're going to focus on price. So we're going to minimize our selection to does it cost the lowest amount to produce it. So there it's a narrower set of criteria that define why we select one bid over another. Uh, And depending on what we're purchasing, it may make more sense to use one or the other. If we're buying copy paper, Mm -hmm. we use the LPTA approach. That's the guidance of the FAR. Just focus on cost. You can specify the size of the paper, its durability, how many pieces, etc., Whereas if we're buying information technology where we're not so clear what it is that we want and we've got these competing criteria at play, then you are to pursue the best value approach. Divergent views abound about the helpfulness and harm of the FAR. 
So the FAR is um, it's a phone book. I've interviewed any number of federal procurement executives, and it's fascinating the kind of divergent views on is this a good regulatory regime or is, is this a cumbersome one. One school of thought about the FAR from those who use it to guide their acquisition is that it is Byzantine, overly procedural, it's, it's not clear how to get the information one needs uh, about how to guide procurement. The other view from perhaps the more creative and crafty procurement officials is it's more of a recipe book. Uh, you can find what you need in there. Uh, and these rules are more suggestive than, than prescriptive. Defining the federal acquisition process and describing the regulatory regime that governs this process sets the stage for identifying some of the key challenges facing acquisition within the federal space. Well, the first is, as I just mentioned, is the variability in the FAR, the regulatory process across federal agencies. On the one hand, this creates flexibility for the agencies, but it does have some diminishment of competition effects in the marketplace. It just makes it harder to sell to the federal government. Uh, so there are sort of two things that federal managers can do as they work with the procurement personnel in their, their agency. One is to take a review of the the FAR or the regulations in their agency and see, first off, are there any opportunities to streamline this and make it easier for both the people on our end that engage in the procurement function and then the vendors who sell to us, and then to look how do our regulations stack up to other agencies? Is there any way we can streamline these and make them more similar to other agencies so we expand the, the marketplace? And so that's, that's one big challenge. A second one that we haven't touched on yet is, and it's huge, and it'll span everything we talk about here, is the state of the procurement workforce. You know, I think there's this belief that when you go to the market and you buy stuff, you don't need people anymore. But the reality is, particularly given both the scale of purchasing that goes on at the federal government and the kinds of things that the federal government buys, you need you first off need a lot of people to handle those processes, and you need an incredibly well-trained, sophisticated group that understands how they perform their technical function, but do so within the overall management structure of the organization. A third one is that contracting is, is risky, and depending on the kinds of goods and services, the products that you're buying, some of them are, are riskier than others. What are the sources of those risks is, is critical for, for, again, a manager to understand how can they use procurement to achieve mission success. There is widespread agreement that the federal government's process for acquiring goods and services needs to change to enable agencies to keep up with the rapid pace of technology development. But with more than 1,800 pages of rules and regulations governing the process, there is growing concern that the government cannot truly support innovation without a dramatic simplification of the rules. It's a mistake, some say, to blame this on the FAR. What's missing in the conversation is everything that comes before the RFP, or request for proposal. It's not really a FAR question. It's writing good statements of work, making the use of draft RFPs, and conducting proper market research. So how do federal agencies actually engage the acquisition process? What are agencies doing to enhance their acquisition capabilities? Are there new ways to procure the necessary goods and services for federal agencies? In the next segment, we'll explore these questions and more.
How can DOD improve its acquisition processes? Check out the latest IBM Center report, Eight Actions to Improve Defense Acquisition. The authors emphasize the urgency of acquisition reform in DOD, given budgetary constraints and security challenges, finding that DOD will need to gain every possible efficiency while resisting the temptation to buy defense on the cheap. This report continues the IBM Center's interest in better understanding and improving the federal government acquisition process. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leaders Speak, a conversation on federal acquisition. With more than $50 billion in business volume, the U.S. General Services Administration, GSA, leverages the scale and scope of the federal government in helping agencies buy smarter, reduce their real estate footprint, and develop and deploy technology more efficiently. In doing this, its federal acquisition service, FAS, works to provide that support. It assists agencies to save time and money by supporting smarter purchasing platforms. FAS Commissioner Tom Sharp explains the role of his office in improving federal acquisition. The key priority in FAS is to, to, to do more uh, to, to help our customer agencies save time and money. That's what we're really, really focused on. So we're very focused on listening to our customers, be sure we understand what they, they need. And we've um, developed a, a vision and an approach to position ourselves for the future to do that. We've taken the product service codes, which is how the federal government tracks its, uh, its, 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 its procurements, its, its buying, and mapped it to 17 categories of spending. And what we're going to do with these categories um, are, are basically two things. Uh, we're going to take these categories and we're creating uh, virtual hallways. So one place to go. And then what we want to do within FAST is we want, in the first instance, support that for good government, help these agencies get to the right decision, agnostic of where that buying goes. In the second instance, we're obviously very focused on understanding those buying behaviors and positioning FAST to better meet these agencies' needs. Uh, so we're all about getting... Uh, creating an environment where um, the buyers can, can get themselves fully informed and can get advice and see the available uh, procurement vehicles and that we can uh, support that and then understand it and provide better vehicles out of FAST over time. Primary benefits uh, of, of this approach will be uh, one place um, that, that a buyer can go or, or any member of the acquisition uh, workforce, um, program managers, project managers, the customers of procurement to get informed. Um, it'll be a place where all the enterprise agreements can sit in one place and we can deal with the, the contract duplication head-on. Be, it'll be transparent. It'll be out in the, the, the light of that hallway, as it were. And we can see, in addition, see the one-off buying behavior, uh, which is typically the, the most applicative and the most wasteful. And we can try to solve for that with pre-positioned vehicles and then capture all the data to, to empower that over time. Sharp elaborates on how category hallways and the common acquisition platform will improve federal acquisition. And again, I see the benefit of the hallways. In the first instance, one place for the acquisition community to go to get informed, and we can see all the buying behavior and agnostic, good government, right, good procurement to support good government. And then FAST as, uh, as, as America's buyer, uh, we're going to do our part to um, have the best, uh, the best solutions in those hallways. So we think desired outcomes of having all this activity in one place as the federal buyers navigate each hallway and the universe of uh, purchasing options available to them, we think over time uh, we'll see better requirements development. We'll see uh, speed 
increased speed in the acquisition process, reduce price variability, which is which is very important, and and ultimately smarter smarter purchases. Uh, the hallways are going to provide a single location for market research information, connecting with colleagues. We hope to have social media where the acquisition workforce can talk to each other. They really don't have that today. Um, they'll be able to get expertise and the ability to complete data-driven acquisitions confidently and efficiently. The hallways are designed to capture the expertise of users, category managers, and industry experts over time, becoming a more powerful tool as we proceed and add content and, 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 and data is populated over time. There are other tools and approaches that are being employed to enhance federal agencies' ability to acquire necessary goods and services. One way is the use of reverse auctions. Competition fuels savings and fastens using reverse auctions to drive savings through competition. Tom Sharp elaborates. Um, competition is at the center of, um, of, of how federal procurement is, is to be conducted, right? There's a bias toward competition, and that's a good thing. Uh, reverse auctions, uh, to me, is, is, is a tool um, we're developing. It's a GSA tool we're developing to support buyers and uh, in, in, in how they price contract. It's a pricing tool. So we've, we've had some great success um, so far. Uh, we're seeing savings in price, cost, and the time for agencies using GSA's reverse auction platform. Price, uh, when compared to independent government cost estimates, reverse auction users are saving about 7%. Cost, commercially provided reverse auction service fees range from about 1% to 3%. There is no additional cost charge for using the platform GSA has when it's used um, to... to uh, against GSA scheduled products uh, and multiple award schedules. Purchase and time, we think reverse auction saves buyers about eight hours per, per action. Processing times are reduced um, on uh, low-price, uh, technically acceptable auctions because bids can be posted for less than 30 days, provided multiple bids are received, and only the low bidder needs to be evaluated for technical acceptability. We did more than $33 million in auctions in fiscal 14. GSA is also signing strategic agreements with multiple agencies to further increase utilization. We are expanding beyond GSA contracts. We have loaded one agency's blanket purchasing agreement and another's multiple award contracts on the platform as part of a pilot. We're also amassing some of the valuable Level 3 transactional data our customers will be able to take advantage of. And usage and sales through, through last August, we had 21 agencies supported. Small business utilization was really an astounding 90-plus percent. Total government cost estimates uh, through it, approaching $10 million. Total awards, just under $9 million. Total savings, three-quarters of a million dollars for almost approaching 8% savings. Sharp illustrates the federal civilian success using reverse auctions. However, the U.S. Department of Defense has been pursuing this approach as well through its Defense Logistics Agency. And Vice Admiral Mark Karnacek, its director, tells us more about the success. You're bidding. You don't see everybody else's bids, but you know you're not the high bidder. So if you want it, you got to determine in your own mind how much you're willing to pay for it. So instead of a sealed bid or a best and final that we negotiate with each of the suppliers, uh, this runs just like it's an online auction. We do it for virtually anything that is more than $100,000, so goods, services, fuel, medicine, all that stuff. So the folks in the auction 
And you only need two to have an auction. Very often we have more than two, three to five to six. And we run it just like a regular auction. So uh, we have a sort of a target where we want to start. And uh, the suppliers bid against one another. So unbeknownst to us, there's all sorts of deliberations going on in their boardrooms with regard to how low they can actually get. Mm -hmm. So what it does is it, it lets everybody else see everybody else's sort of margin and how low can you go. And again, uh, our rule to start with was that any buy that was over $100,000, we were going to subject that to a reverse auction. Over the past year, we've done uh, over 5,000 reverse auctions. No kidding, auditable, no kidding savings. We're at about a billion eight. What we found is they work very well where there's a lot of competition, obviously, where there's a pretty robust sort of uh, base, where the margins are what I mean profit is, is probably in the neighborhood of uh, 10% or a little more, obviously where the dollar value is pretty big and where the contract is of a longer term. We uh, ran a bulk fuel buy that we only saved about you know 3% on, but 3% on a contract that's a couple billion dollars is real money. We had another uh, contract that we ran, or an auction that we ran a couple months ago for a medical prime bender, medical supplies. It's a 10-year contract worth about $10 billion. Uh, we say 5%, 5% of $10 billion is a big number. Along with reverse auctions, federal agencies are using competitions through the Challenge.gov platform to spur innovation, save money, and act as an alternative to traditional contracting approaches. A government challenger contest is exactly what the name suggests. It is a challenge by the government to a third party or parties to identify a solution to a particular problem or reward contestants for accomplishing a particular goal. Prizes, monetary or non-monetary, often accompany challenges and contests. Challenges can range from fairly simple ideas, suggestions, creations of logos, videos, digital games, and more importantly, mobile apps, to proofs of concepts, designs, or finished products that can solve the grand challenges of the 21st century. Kathy Conrad, Principal Deputy Associate Administrator, Office of Citizen Services and Innovative Technology within GSA, outlines the benefits of using competitions and the Challenge.gov platform. Challenge.gov offers a new tool and platform to engage the public in harnessing the value of the data, as is documented very, very well and very thoroughly in your recent excellent report on Challenge.gov. So Challenge.gov is a crowdsourcing platform for challenges and prizes for solutions to government problems. Many of them uh, use open data sets. It's important to note that agencies are actually authorized to conduct these competitions and contests under the American Competes Act. There's still some uh, skepticism about whether agencies can really do this. And in fact, they not only can do it, they are doing it. Some of the um, benefits of using challenges are that it's very cost-effective. You pay only for successful entries or solutions, so you're not paying for anything that you don't, in fact, really want and that doesn't meet your um, criteria. It allows for really, really broad engagement. Innovative and ideas and expertise is tapped from well beyond traditional sources. And it allows the government to partner with the private sector to fund or expand prizes and has proven to be really just an amazing tool for achieving big breakthroughs where solvers invent products, write software, design systems, develop mobile apps, create videos, games, and more. It also creates a social network of people who care about an issue, who can follow and vote and share information about the challenges, 
through email, Facebook, and Twitter. So that builds awareness and interest in critical agency policy national issues at much lower cost than a traditional communications uh, campaign might do. Federal agencies can use challenges and prizes to find innovative and cost-effective submissions or improvements to ideas, products, and processes. Government can identify the goal without choosing the approach or team most likely to succeed and pay only for performance if a winning submission is submitted. Challenges and prizes can tap into innovations from unexpected people and places. Tools such as reverse auctions and challenges and prizes can help agencies save money, realize efficiencies, and more effectively meet missions. But what are the characteristics of complex contracting? And what are some of the issues surrounding complex federal acquisition? We will explore these questions and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leader Speak, returns. Government leaders and managers face major challenges today, including fiscal austerity, citizen expectation, the pace of technology and innovation, and a new role for governance. These challenges influence how government executives lead today, but more importantly, how they can be prepared for tomorrow. The IBM Center report, Six Trends Driving Change in Government, offers a path forward for government executives responding to the ever-increasing complexity and challenges they face today. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leaders Speak, a conversation on federal acquisition. The U.S. federal government is increasingly acquiring products that have qualities that cannot be easily and clearly defined in advance and that are difficult to verify after the product or service has been delivered. Trevor Brown and David Benslike, authors of Complex Contracting, elaborate. There, there's a distinction made in the procurement community between goods and services. Goods are the hard stuff in terms of literal hard things. You can touch them, feel them, whatever. And services are the services that people provide. We think that's the wrong distinction. The important distinction we think is between, as you mentioned, complex products and simple products. And think of products as inclusive of goods and services. Simple products are easy to describe and easy to make. Complex products are hard to describe and hard to make. And by hard to describe, we mean that they are hard to literally write down in a contract what it is that I want to buy. It's very difficult for me to specify everything about that product that I want. Things that are hard to make are things that require what academics would call specialized investments, investments that are unique to the production of that product that can't easily be transferred to some other product if people stop buying it. We highlight uh, the Nimitz, the U.S. military's successful acquisition of aircraft carriers. Uh, And here you have a very challenging market situation in which there's only one purchaser, The Department of the Navy is the only one that buys Nimitz-class aircraft carriers, and there's only one provider. Historically, it was Newport News, uh, which has been bought by Northrop Grumman. So there's not a lot of buyers and sellers in this marketplace. They are in a long-term relationship, but it's been a very, very successful long-term relationship in the sense that the Department of Defense has acquired an asset that allows it to project its strength and fulfill its mission requirements over a 100-year period now. And the vendor has successfully been able to remain profitable and continue to produce a product uh, for a single uh, buyer. 
The Nimitz example highlights a successful complex DOD acquisition. And DOD, which consumes the second largest portion of the government revenue after entitlements, will likely see significant cuts in the coming year. Indeed, cuts are already being made. And at the same time, DOD must continue to support operations and modernize forces in support of national security. In light of these budget constraints and the evolving security challenges, DOD will need to gain every possible efficiency while reducing the temptation to buy defense on the cheap. Jack Ensler and Bill Lucian, authors of the IBM Center report, Eight Actions to Improve Defense Acquisition, explain this situation in more detail. One of the most obvious things is it's uncertain. And therefore, the preparation for a wide variety of future potential events uh, has to uh, increase your costs because you got to, how do you handle everything from terrorism to cybersecurity to tank-on-tank engagements and so forth? And uh, that, that uncertainty represents uh, a challenge when it, the budgets are declining. And that's been a, a, a traditional problem. Uh, and in fact, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, when he was there, Mike Mullen, said the number one national security problem is the debt. Mm-hmm. Because if we can't handle it all, how do we get prepared for it? And our strategy for the last, like, 50 years has been technological superiority. That's been our national security strategy. Well, then that means you have to continue to invest in research. And one of the first things that always goes when the budget declines, the first three things, actually, are travel, training, and research. So training and research are kind of foolish things to cut. On the other hand, uh, because especially with the uncertainty, you want to be able to respond rapidly, and that's what training is for, readiness. And research is so that you can stay ahead technologically. And we're losing our lead in that. And technology has now become globalized so that everybody has technology. It's hard to maintain technological leadership unless you invest in it. Well, when you look at the budget, you can see that the average budget over the last 70 years for DOD has been about $480 billion. And so we're still well above that level. But at the same time, you have increasing O&M costs and increasing health care costs increasing support costs. So there's a tremendous squeeze on what's left in the budget to allow for modernization. And that's, I believe, a significant threat. One, one of the things that I could add to that is, is that people believe that this 18-year cycle that we see in the defense budget is somehow a law of nature. It's not. It's exogenously driven. Every time there's an external event like 9-11 or Pearl Harbor or North Korea, you know, any of those events, that's what drives the budget. It's not just a law of nature that uh, follows every 18 years. You build it up and it comes down and goes up and comes down. I, th- I think it's important to recognize that this uncertainty of, of the f- strategic environment is also affecting the uncertainty in the budget environment. Absolutely, yeah. In the spring of 2010, there was a recognition by the Secretary of Defense that the current fiscal environment would not support the continued budgetary growth that DOD had experienced in previous decades. So the department pursued the Better Buying Power Initiative, which is in its third iteration. Well, one of the things that is essentially wrong in it, was it it, it said all services will be recompeted every three years. Mm -hmm. That's a total disincentive to a service company. Instead, what it it should have said is you'll be rewarded with a follow-on if you reduce the cost and improve the performance. That's an incentive to get higher performance at lower cost. And that's been dropped in the follow-on Better Buying Power 2.0, yeah. 
but I think that's the kind of thing that you just don't want to incentivize <laughs> backwards, you know. Well, I, I think that was a change in how the, the uh, initiative evolved. Okay. Uh, the first one was more prescriptive. It said always do this okay. or always use fixed-price contracts. And the second one tried to be a lot more nuanced and said use the appropriate contract structure, use the appropriate kind of competition. Well, if you end up focusing on low cost mm -hmm. and forget about high performance and high reliability, you get cheap junk. Yeah. And that's not what we need. What we need is high performance at low cost. And to get that, you need incentives. And the way you can get incentives, one of them is, of course, through competition. Another is by rewarding, if you have a sole source supplier, mm -hmm. that they can either get a higher profit if they do lower cost, because profit's only a small percentage. It's only like 5% of the of the total cost. If you can figure out how to reduce the total cost, you could give them 6% profit on a smaller number. Okay, so that, that's one way you can do it. Another way you can do it is by incentivizing them through follow-on business. If they do a good job, they'll get the follow-on. If they don't get higher performance at lower cost, throw it open to competition. That's, that's essentially the threat of competition. But it works. What else works? That's what Jack Gansler and Bill Lucian, authors of the IBM Center report, Eight Actions for Improving Defense Acquisition, want to focus on. How do you create continuous yeah. incentives? Okay. It's the incentives part that people They're missing. are missing. Okay. And you, you want to do it for the right reasons. So if you're one of the suppliers, you want to figure out how do I get a higher profit with a guaranteed follow-on. And the way you do it is getting higher and higher performance at lower and lower costs with higher and higher reliability. And so we want to figure out how to compete in each phase of the program. If you mandate competition every uh, two or three years, the inclination is going to be not to invest any money but okay. to provide the, the service at the lowest cost possible and increase your profits, knowing that you there's an excellent chance that you may lose that uh, contract in the next go-around. Well, one thing that is hard to do perhaps but necessary, and that is past performance should matter and, and whether you're a qualified source uh, because if you – if you have a good historic record, that will help a lot in, in simplifying the process. And the other thing you want to do is to not drive the, the cost very high for the competition. Mm -hmm. So if you have a thousand people bidding on it, you know that may be fair, but it's also much more expensive. And in fact, people don't try very hard when they have that a thousand people bidding against them because the probability of win is small. And so you want to shape the competition. And, and, down, and that's why the prototype competition is usually just two or three uh, that are funded. In all cases, they will have gone through a qualification first. Are they qualified? Do they know what they're doing? Uh, have they a decent history? And then let them demonstrate. And the demonstration is a key piece of this competition in that case. Gansler and Lucian also call for improving the effectiveness of such things as IDIQ contracts. But more importantly, none of these recommendations or improvements will happen without DOD and other federal agencies recruiting and retaining a world-class acquisition workforce. What does the future hold for federal acquisition? We will explore this question and much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leaders Speaks, returns. In a world inundated with all kinds of information, timely, relevant, and more predictive data can drive better decision-making 
Law enforcement agencies are at the forefront in leveraging data and using innovative software to generate predictions that help police prevent crime. What is predictive policing? How can using analytics make us safer? Check out the IBM Center report, Predictive Policing, Preventing Crime with Data and Analytics by Jen Bachner, and find out. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. What do agency leaders need to know about the federal acquisition process? What are some of the key federal procurement trends? And how can agency leaders overcome today's acquisition challenges? Check out the new Center Report, A Guide for Agency Leaders on Federal Acquisition, by Trevor Brown and find out. The report offers practical recommendations for improving federal acquisition. Download your free copy of A Guide for Agency Leaders on Federal Acquisition at businessofgovernment.org and find out how the business of government is not business as usual. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. Leaders Speak, a conversation on federal acquisition. There are certainly major shifts occurring in business and society. They include greater interconnectedness, information proliferation, increased demand for transparency, and heightened customer and employee expectations. Tom Sharp, Commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service within GSA, speaks to how these factors are impacting his organization and how the government acquires goods and services. Right now, there are 61,000 people doing acquisition on behalf of federal agencies, 61,000. Uh, and many of them are working in a bubble, uh, meaning without knowledge of what their counterparts across government are doing. These inefficiencies drive up acquisition lead times and operating costs, needlessly wasting very precious resources. They also make it increasingly difficult for any of us, industry and government alike, to effectively carry out our various missions. And this is happening because we don't have a firm grasp on what is happening government-wide. We don't have the transparency we need and want. We don't have an effective community of practice. We are not as interconnected as we should be. We haven't harnessed what data can tell us about the the government market and our customer agency needs. So what are we doing? So FAST has developed a collective plan to be more efficient and effective in the future through transforming our business models to respond to these market needs, interconnecting us with each other in government and with industry through category management, setting up decision-making tools and data capture mechanisms in, in the common acquisition platform in the hallways we keep talking about, and make it easier for the workforce to do great things by easing the technical and resource burdens. Category management, when implemented successfully, has the potential to deliver on these issues of transparency and connectedness, while significantly improving other buying behaviors and fixing a lot of what government needs to fix with respect to these procurement issues. When tackling the future of federal acquisition, Trevor Brown and David Vance Lyke, authors of Complex Contracting, believe increasing risk tolerance and acceptance while investing in the acquisition workforce are key. The easiest way to minimize the risk of acquiring complex products is to stop buying it. That's not going to happen. Um, the, the U.S. federal government is continuing to push the edge of the envelope on the acquisition of sophisticated information technology, advanced weapon systems, integrated healthcare systems, all of the mission requirements that face us, all the wicked problems that are out there demand the acquisition of complex stuff. So you, you can't stop buying it. 
In fact, I think it's only going to accelerate. Uh, and it's going to cascade down to lower levels of government. We used to think of things like aircraft carriers and the deep water system as kind of boutique exotic products that only the Department of Defense buys. But the reality is every government buys information technology. The life cycle on the average information technology system is 18 months, and that's probably going to get faster. So everybody's going to need to figure out how do we acquire this, this complex stuff with rapid future change. That's uncertainty about what we're buying. Interestingly, I gave a talk to a bunch of local purchasers once, and I said, these are people at localities, counties. I said, what's the most exotic thing you bought? Three or four of them said, drones, unmanned aerial vehicles. This is something we think of, oh, no, that's just the Department of Defense prosecuting the war in Afghanistan. No, everybody's buying this crazy stuff. So it's not going away. So the risks are not going to go away. I think the open question is, is how do you respond to those risks? One thing that I specified in the, the report um, that's a theme that runs throughout our book is you got to invest in the workforce. Uh, and so a question before policymakers, particularly before Congress, is are you going to put the resources forward to invest in the acquisition workforce? Are you going to allow agencies to buy employees? to be able to staff their procurement function. From the agency standpoint, the open question is, are they going to take the steps to integrate what used to be a back office function into the central management core? Clearly, our recommendations are, you got to do that. You, to buy is to manage. And so agencies should follow the pathway of the big purchasers, like the Department of Defense, a stellar example of how you professionalize the procurement core uh, that other agencies need to follow suit. Uh, so that's a, that's a big one. Some of the other things are at some point someone's going to have to revisit the FAR. The regulatory regime needs to be at least examined. In the debate about whether we should keep government running, our encouragement is we should move that debate to how do we make the government run well. And Unfortunately, politically, that debate seems to be about whether the private sector should perform functions, i.e. we should minimize the size of government, versus whether the public sector should perform functions, i.e. we should increase the size of government. That's the wrong debate. Both of those sectors are involved in performing public activities. Contracting is an example of where the public and the private sector interact to generate value for, for all of us. So rather than have a debate about which one is better, we should have a debate about how do we make them work together. And that's what contracting really is about. How do we create a system in which the government can acquire those services and goods, those, those products, so that they get things delivered at cost on time that work for them? How do we, how do we get stuff that works? Uh, and that means that, that I would hope that members of Congress, policymakers, would start to hold hearings not on whether we should get rid of stuff, but how do we make it work better? Um, and so in healthcare.gov, I've been actually pleasantly surprised that some of the more recent testimony has begun to focus on 
what can the Department of Health and Human Services do to not just make the website work better, but how can they improve their their acquisition function? I think this is where, you know, some of the people who listen to your show, like members of the Professional Services Council, NCMA, NIGP, one of the things that comes out in all of their reports is more skills, not just the skills of compliance and following regulations, but skills like negotiation, relationship management skills, managing the market skills, getting out and actually talking to vendors. And it's not only just having some technical expertise, right? You know, this is what a certain type of IT system would have. And it's not just kind of contract acquisition skills. It's broader set of analytical skills, how to think about some of these trade-offs ahead of time. And I think that's an investment that's not going to be easy to come, but is much necessary. One of the things that I've heard people at DOD say is that they've worked long and hard with the Defense Acquisition University to move away from just FAR compliance skills to really thinking about, you know, negotiation skills and how to manage the market and understanding how, you know, the breadth and depth of the market on some components and how thin the market is in in other areas. And so I think, you know, this is where the acquisition workforce has to be a priority. And I think, you know, until, you know, we've seen kind of fits and starts in every administration, and this administration has not made acquisition a priority. It has made, you know, the notion of insourcing a priority. But then even there, there's been a lot of variability. And, you know, if you're going to make insourcing a priority, you also have to make resources for training and development and capacity building a priority. And you just can't say we're bringing it all in-house. You need to have the people in-house to do it. Dan Chenuck, executive director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government, offers his views on transforming federal acquisition for the future. He asserts that acquisition transformation, not just reform, is critical to enable the federal government to effectively lead in what he refers to as the collaboration age. So collaboration age really implies the the shifting emphasis that technology creates and that citizen expectations create on looking across organizational boundaries to receive services and provide services in ways that really didn't exist 10 to 15 years ago. Through... um, cloud computing, through big data, through uh, analytics that ties together a whole lot of different information streams. The collaboration age implies that organizations have to work together to provide services because individuals are expecting and, and able through technology to look across and expect that collaboration to occur. And the organizations that in, that adopt this model are, we're seeing, much more successful in the marketplace. So as federal acquisition thinks about about this, it's really responding to that technology imperative and to thinking about uh, in, an, in a world where lots of information and services are coming uh, through an as-a-service model as opposed to what, what might be a more traditional hierarchical uh, technological uh, provision through a, a, a set of servers or mainframes or applications and pulling together computing ac- activities that are acquired in ways that are uh, agile, flexible, uh, and can meet the needs of citizens that are expecting this collaborative, uh, uh, flexible approach to the world. Chenick outlines the characteristics of federal acquisition in the collaboration age. 
one of the things that the acquisition of the future activity has uh, been looking at is what does that future state look like uh, for federal acquisition? What, what would uh, a, a really 21st century acquisition uh, activity entail? And, and a number of those elements include, uh, for example, a, a more mature understanding of how to uh, address risk in acquisition. So right now, uh, the acquisition process tends to take risk and, uh, and minimize it, basically require the offer to absorb it or address it by uh, going to sort of a lowest common denominator approach for all elements of a particular system or program that's being acquired. In the private sector, there's a, a view of risk that, that's a cost um, that you incur based on uh, relative to the value that you're pro providing or receiving from the service. And so a much more mature understanding of risk in the government would allow uh, an acquiring agency uh, to work with, with the uh, sellers uh, to understand what's the risk financial, programmatic, cybersecurity, et cetera, in the technology that's being acquired or the program being acquired, how do you uh, minimize that risk, but also how do you recognize and communicate to the people being served by the program what that risk looks like? That's one characteristic. Uh, one other that I'll highlight now is, is what I'll call more of a marketplace approach and less of a rules-based approach. So if you think about commercial buying and selling, there are many direct buyer-seller relationships that are created um, through a value-based relationship where I'm buying something, I'm looking for the seller who is best place to provide it. And you're seeing that in both in online e-commerce and in um, Amazon and uh, other types of, of organizations that are providing those types of, of consumer services, as well as some of the more interesting approaches, things like Uber and Lyft, where you're seeing lots of these individual buyer-seller marketplaces spreading up. In the government, we have a, a through decades of building a policy through the federal acquisition regulation, much more of a rules-based and compliance-based uh, acquisition process. And so if we can create pilot programs, allow flexibility in exchange for accountability, we can start to create characteristics of a future acquisition process that really look more like the collaboration age process that exists in the private sector. Chenick outlines how transforming federal acquisition for the future will be realized. So acquisition of the future was really the product of a, a, a series of discussions among government leaders and a small group of industry uh, and nonprofit uh, executives to support those leaders to try to say, all right, we've, we've been trying to do incremental reforms on acquisition for really 10, 15 years now, and we're still uh, basically making incremental progress. And if we're really going to move to this 21st century model of acquisition where government is, is really seeing value from, in terms of its interaction from the private sector in a significantly greater way, we need to think about a future state that is, uh, if you will, how you would build the system if you didn't have the history. So, uh, so how would you set up a federal acquisition process and, and set of outcomes without regard to all of the current constraints and policies? And then how do you create a roadmap to get from where we are today 
toward that future vision, recognizing that you'll never actually achieve it. It's more like a, a, a goalpost that you're trying to move toward and, um, uh, and recognizing that, you know, you're going to continue to have the need to um, provide taxpayer integrity, to establish clear rules and, and um, expectations among buyers and sellers, to guard against fraud, uh, but to move toward that relationship and that future state. And that's really what the acquisition of the future effort is all about in a nutshell. It's trying to uh, move a conversation across leaders in government and then expand the circle uh, into the industry stakeholders that support government and the nonprofit colleagues of government uh, to try to say, how do we define what that future looks like and how do we move toward that shared objective? Some may find this vision of the future somewhat fanciful given the highly political and regulatory nature of federal acquisition. Chenek responds to these concerns. Right. So I think that it's important to have a realistic expectation of what that future state will will hold. And it's not that we are going to shed the FAR tomorrow. Uh, and, the FAR, and the FAR and policies and rules and procedures exist for a very good reason, to ensure that we're providing a fair process, that acquisitions are bought through an equal playing field in the competitive process, uh, and that the government has a way to measure value over time in working with its, with its community of, uh, of companies that are selling services and products to it. It's more that, that without that kind of future uh, guidepost, all of the efforts that we have now are, will continue to kind of work in different directions and may not come together in a coherent strategic fashion um, where both government and industry understand what that future state looks like. So really, this is, this is an effort to try to create a a place where people can look to see a common future so that the various conversations that they're having, both in individual procurements as well as in reforms of policy, are moving toward a common objective uh, set of, of criteria, this, this sort of acquisition of the future state that I described earlier. And it's not that we're saying that you shouldn't continue to to do the things that you do day to day, that government acquisition community, that uh, the, the professionals, highly skilled professionals that exist in the acquisition offices and in the agency buying offices uh, should, should necessarily change overnight how they're working. It's more that the the future state creates a, a place that they can look toward to say, all right, we know that there can be a better, a better way to do things, and we're going to move our efforts together slowly toward that objective and come up with pilots and programs that, that really provide better services. And, and, and I think that's an achievable goal. I hope you've enjoyed today's conversation exploring federal acquisition and found it insightful. This has been Leader Speak, a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. What is the management and performance agenda for the U.S. Department of Commerce? How is commerce working to transform the way it does business? What is commerce doing to support its employees and reform its hiring process? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Ellen Herbst, Chief Financial Officer and Assistant Secretary of Administration, U.S. Department of Commerce. 
Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.